Welcome to Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and the France Foundation. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, AbbVie, Daiichi Sankyo, Pharmacyclics, and Illumina. As medical professionals, it's important that we stay up to date on the latest developments in genomic testing and understand how to interpret those test results, as well as select the appropriate therapeutic agents to manage hematologic malignancies. This podcast will focus on therapeutic testing for multiple myeloma. I am your host, Dr. Sanjay Janeja. I'm a community oncologist down in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and chief of the oncology service at Baton Rouge General. And I am joined today with Dr. Ajay Chari, professor of clinical medicine and the director of multiple myeloma at UCSF. Dr. Chari, I'm super excited to pick your brain today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me and always happy to talk about myeloma. Awesome. So the way we think about multiple myeloma, right? It's a monoclonal disease that kind of has different tiers. It's MGUS, it's smoldering, it's it's full-blown multiple myeloma. Generally, I think everyone's familiar with getting fish and cytogenetics and kind of having a risk stratifier when you have full-blown myeloma. But is there a role? And if so, what is it when it comes to genomics as it relates to those three different stages? And then obviously, when you have the diagnosis of myeloma with one of those crab features. The precursor conditions are artifactual human-defined conditions. So whether it's bone marrow percent in plasma cells and M-spike, those are artifactual. And I think when you look at the genomics, the genomic alterations you see in myeloma can be seen in smoldering and be seen also in MGUS. So genomic alterations are neither necessary nor sufficient to be called myeloma. And we think that some of these changes can actually happen quite early in oncogenesis in myeloma. So I think we need a lot more tools to distinguish those. And I think we're still at the infancy, perhaps like immunologic environment, for example, checkpoint expression has been implicated. So I think we're the infancy, but switching gears to active myeloma, historically defined by the crab symptoms, some also integrate some crab, but for the purposes of this discussion, if you have active symptomatic myeloma, Cytogenetics is kind of older technique, um, and it's rudimentary. Uh, FISH is more advanced, as we know, and um, there are certain translocations, deletions, amplifications that are considered high risk. I think we're also early in the infancy for the novel techniques of next-gen sequencing, um, and there you can do RNA-seq, whole exome sequencing, whole genome sequencing. Those are still in its infancy, but at a high level, we know that genomics plays a large part in risk stratification of myeloma currently. No doubt. So if I'm hearing you correctly, the way we classically learned, you know, the smoldering versus myeloma versus MGUS, it doesn't sound like the genomics actually changed that kind of classic way on how we define it. But I guess not surprisingly, if you have an issue that looks like it's going to turn, quote unquote, neoplastic or unregulated, obviously they can present themselves before you have one of those things, high calcium, renal disease, anemia, uh, uh, bone pathology. So when you talked about the risk stratification, now say someone has and meets all the criteria for myeloma, what are some of those things that we look at, especially, you know, I know in the first line, I think everyone knows that usually you think, okay, you know, are they transplant eligible or transplant ineligible, right? And even that is a matter of discussion, I assume, based on some of the properties on what their risk is. How do you kind of go through that process when someone has myeloma? And what are the, some of the things as community oncologists, we should really think about like, whoa, this is a red flag. This is something we need to kind of be more intense or basically be thinking transplant if there's any way to do so. 
I always start with uh, this lymphoma envy to compare myeloma to lymphoma. I mean, the difference is that when a patient has a biopsy of a lymph node, the pathologist is able to tell us whether this is indolent, moderately aggressive, highly aggressive. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately with myeloma, the pathologists don't help us very much. They can tell us these are neoplastic plasma cells, but we aren't yet able to risk stratify these patients histopathologically into discrete subsets that allow us to treat them differently. And so where we are with risk stratification, which is ultimately, you know, I think we're always trying to figure out, we call multiple myeloma that for a variety of reasons. One is because it's not just a solitary plasma cytoma, but another interpretation might be that in a given patient, there may be multiple clones and there's both Mm. spatial and genomic heterogeneity in in a given patient. So when you have a patient with multiple myeloma, uh, we can't use histopathology, but I think genomics can be helpful. And so the way we typically have staged myeloma first was the ISS staging, which was clean and simple based on beta-2 and albumin, but it was criticized for the lack of genomic information. And so then the revised ISS incorporates FISH, particularly deletion 17P, uh, translocation 414, translocation 1416, 1420. But then the limitation of that was it didn't include chromosome 1 aberrations. So the R2 ISS, which was just published, incorporates chromosome 1 alterations also where extra copies of chromosome 1Q or deletion of 1P can also factor into risk. And so those are kind of like our current baseline characteristics, beta 2, albumin, and these fish findings. But I think what we're also recognizing that it's not that simple. Clearly, there's zero cytogenetic abnormalities, and there's one cytogenetic, and then there's two or more. And that makes a difference too. So if you have deletion 17P and 414, that's even worse than having just one of those two, as would make sense. And then finally, one of the things I always struggle with in talking about risk stratifications with patients is that none of us have a crystal ball. And the purposes of these risk stratifications is to give statistical approximations based on large population studies, but we know that it never applies to a specific individual. And I think what we're also understanding is this new and evolving term, which is also being studied and advanced in other hemolignancies, which is this concept of functional risk. And so you have these baseline risk characteristics, but then after you treat, what happens? Does the patient attain complete eradication of disease or not? Do they have uh, early relapse or not? Even in the absence of genomic predictors, those can be important. So there's baseline risk stratification and then post-treatment risk stratification that need to be considered. Yeah, that makes sense. Sometimes patients will ask, okay, am I high risk, low risk? I, you know, looked it up and it's a fair question, but it's like a risk of what, right? And so at the beginning, you're trying to achieve this thing that we call, you know, you said eradicate disease and the term when you say cure or what we like to use is measurable residual disease or MRD. So up front, when somebody presents, I always kind of have an idea of goals and I'm like, our first goal Forget the cure, the transplant, all these, but let's try to achieve measurable residual disease. And so it sounds like you're saying there's a risk associated with not being able to achieve that, like a high risk or a low risk of not being able to and hopefully getting that MRD. And then you're saying that evaluation has its own subset of data where it can then say, okay, we got there, but what is the likelihood that we'll stay there? Is that correct? And what are some of those things that may make some of those, you know, better or worse? Yeah. So I guess one of the, pros of myeloma relative to some of the other conditions like lymphoma in particular is it's an exquisitely monitorable disease. So you have SPEP, IFE, UPEP, urine immunofixation, light chains, imaging, and you can integrate all that. Uh, But we now know that if somebody has achieved all of that, and so I always talk to my patients and say, 
I want to know whether you're getting an A or an A plus because I'm a nerd and I want that A plus. <laughs> How do you determine if somebody's getting an A plus? For that, when you have achieved eradication of disease by all those conventional serologic and radiologic tests, that's when you then go to the marrow and say, can I detect one in a million clones of myeloma that we call typically minimal residual disease or MRD. So when we're looking at residual disease and some other malignancies, the term measurable may be used. But in myeloma, we have a lot of other serologic measurements. So we tend to use the term minimal residual disease. And of course, as you might imagine, deeper is better. A plus is better than A minus. And so we know that achieving MRD has a significant prognostic impact on the patient, but also sustaining that MRD is important. There's that adage, is it better to have loved and lost or to never loved at all? If you've attained MRD, but not sustained it, that's just as bad potentially as not ever having had it. So that's a key in myeloma that there sometimes can be sampling issues, right? Because you're just doing one pocket of disease. So unlike some of our leukemia colleagues, you have to interpret myeloma MRD in that context. Um, and then the one footnote I'll just put onto this is that, again, myeloma is very complex. And there are studies saying that sometimes a patient can be MRD positive, but if that is just that patient's MGUS clone, you don't necessarily need to go chasing that to oblivion. And I think we need to look at the whole patient. Is this patient frail elderly? Are they fit? Do they have other genomic high-risk features or not? Could this be a residual MGUS clone? What is the immune microenvironment? Is it favorable or unfavorable? And so there's a lot of data you need to integrate. Um, but in general, as you might expect, whether it's by SPEP, light chains, or MRD, deeper remission has significant prognostic value. For sure. And if we're able to, say, achieve that MRD and they are under 60 to 65 years old, should we still be really kind of you know, thinking transplant in all these patients, just the intermediate and high risk. How do we navigate that given the fact we know there's so many lines out there now where people are able to live years, whereas opposed to sometimes I still say myeloma and patients are like, oh my goodness. And they get very scared because they saw an experience, you know, maybe a decade and a half ago and a loved one and, and myeloma treatment looks different today. Do you transplant everybody or should we be thinking about that in every patient that had myeloma and is a transplant candidate under 60 or 65? Well, the best way to answer that, of course, would be with data and the determination study, which compared RVD with transplant upfront versus RVD with deferred transplant, was just presented and published in New England Journal. And the primary endpoint of that study was progression-free survival, and transplant did add over 20 months. And so that met the primary endpoint. In most historical myeloma studies, a PFS of 20-month improvement would be like game-changing, no questions asked, let's move on. However, that same data, and there's a good joke, if you ask 10 myeloma doctors a question, you'll get 12 answers. And so when this same data set was presented at ASH to, uh, actually, it was presented before ASH at a myeloma meeting last August, and the moderator asked the myeloma audience, raise your hand if you think this supports transplant, and raise your hand if you think it refutes transplant. And the reason for that question is there was no overall survival benefit. And some people also believe that transplant incurs mutagenesis and increases genomic alterations. And so that same data set, 30% of people felt it was against transplant, whereas 70% felt it supported transplant. Wow. So same data set, and these are myeloma experts. So I think my particular interpretation is when, if you're going to interpret a study, you got to look at the primary endpoint. The primary endpoint was progression-free survival, not overall survival. It's going to take a lot more patients and a lot more follow-up to get OS benefits. And so I think it's reasonable if you have somebody below the age of 70 who's fit to do the transplant. And I should mention that the benefit was even higher for high-risk patients. Um, so I think 
that's definitely, I think, reasonable. And to that same point, if somebody's going to be over 70, if you're reluctant to do transplant now, are you going to be more excited when you're 73 or 74? So I think if you're approaching 70, just get it done and move on or don't do it at all. Now, if you're younger um, and you want to defer it, I think if you're standard risk and you've had MRD negativity, it is a reasonable question to defer. But again, we don't have really good data because unfortunately, the delayed transplant group, only 25% of those patients or so had received transplant at the time of progression. So it doesn't really answer the question of early versus late. It's like early versus if you got transplant. And then the other thing to mention is that there was definitely no harm from transplant. There was no increased risk of death or mutagenesis. There were slight increases in AMLs, but that again, did not confer negative overall survival. And I think the final thing to have in this discussion is quality of life. Because when you have two relatively efficacious arms, what's the patient experience? And that showed that quality of life is transiently impaired, but for only about three months after that, they're superimposable. So I think the listeners will have to take their own interpretation with each individual patient and kind of going over these nuances. But I would encourage all transplant eligible patients to be referred because we do think that having those stem cells can also be beneficial with some of our kind of new therapies like CAR-T, which can sometimes cause persistent cytopenias. And it's nice to have a little bit of salvage cells left. Uh, so I would still encourage referral whether or not the patient elects to move forward with. That's what I was going to say. And we'll get to that in a second is then you throw another wrench and it increase it from 12 answers to 14 from those you know, <laughs> specialists to see what happens with CAR-T now is possibly an option down the line, you know, depending on what the data shows. But before we get there, I think most community oncologists have an idea of what their induction therapy is, right? Bortezomib or lenalidomide always has a steroid or daratumumab. But I remember from my boards and from fellowship, the one thing you do not want to miss is a translocation of 1114, because that is very well suited for, I believe, venetoclax. And I was curious if that continues to be the case for other possible mutations or molecular things that can be found as it relates to RAS and BRAF, or is still that the one that we can say for sure, hey, this is something that you know you really got to think about if you see these numbers in a sequence. The Bellini study, which addresses the role of venetoclax 1114 myeloma, is really important uh, because historically, we do use the response rates in PFS as surrogates for overall survival, but the Bellini study put some cautionary tales into that, and we've had a couple of other examples of that because in the overall population, there was actually a decrease in overall survival despite improved response rate in PFS, and that deaths came from increased risk of infectious deaths in the non-1114 patients. So it's it's our first example in myeloma of personalized medicine because certainly we should not be using venetoclax in non-1114 myeloma based on the Bellini. In fact, the FDA, for that reason, halted that study. Uh, but on the flip side, it is exquisitely sensitive for 1114 myeloma with a hazard ratio of 0.1, which means a 90% improvement wow. in the likelihood of progression or death. And there was no harm in overall survival. So that's our dream to have more of these genomic subsets of myeloma that can really get targeted therapy. Uh, but historically, we've been challenged because of the multiple clones in a given patient. You may go after one clone, but then what are you doing about the rest of it? And so that's kind of the limitation. But And, and I should mention that the Bellini study was bortezomib, dex, and venetoclax. So it was a triplet therapy. And so at least you are getting some other control. And some of that may have to do with the counterbalances to BCL2, like Noxa, for example. For sure. So, you know, I think that's an important point we've mentioned more than once is 
it's called monoclonal, right? Like, but there's could be multiple clones that are still pathologic, much like it is with solid tumors. I think we're just starting to appreciate, you know, a diagnosis of a certain type cancer type is obviously their variants in a way that people familiarize themselves with viruses now that are kind of in the same category, but may behave differently. And that could be challenging if you're doing a purely targeted therapy because you could just let another one quote unquote ride, for example. But when it comes to those targets, are there some like with RAS or BRAF that look promising or something that's being studied in myeloma? Or should we be thinking about that now, even when we see it on our molecular reports? Yes. So there have been studies and uh, one particular study that's ongoing through the MMRF, MMRC is called MyDrug, where a relapsed myeloma patient gets sequenced and based on the sequencing results, they get assigned a particular treatment. So it's kind of an umbrella protocol. One of those subsets is RAS and BRAF. Um, So there have been quite encouraging data from that. But I think the problem is, again, uh, the progression-free survival has been relatively modest. And when we have these T-cell redirection therapies of bispecifics and CAR-Ts, which are being used for all patients, regardless of genomic stratification, it's hard to argue with these outstanding responses that we're seeing. But I think clearly uh, there's going to be need to study these genomic subsets further to really answer that question in terms of comparative data. For sure. And that kind of T-cell redirection therapy and CAR-T, as people recall it, that's all under investigation now. There's no FDA-approved indications yet. I think most of the trials I look at you know, require multi-mechanism kind of resistance in the myeloma setting, but it's certainly something that people could think about if they're you know, a few lines along and still having trouble, correct? Well, actually, that was true until, but myeloma is progressing so quickly <laughs> compared to when I was a fellow. There's been uh, many, many new drugs added. And just in the last year or so, we've had two CAR-Ts, Idacel, Siltacel, and then also a bispecific teclistimab, all approved, as you said, though, for heavily treated myeloma. And I think just to tie this into the topic here, genomics, all those treatments were studied in patients with a median of five to six lines of therapy, and about half of those patients were molecularly high risk as well. So we think these therapies are effective. Whether they overcome high risk remains to be seen because we need randomized studies to answer that question. But I think the more high risk a patient is, the more we're excited about moving these really potent therapies earlier. And then the one thing I'll just mention, because I think we don't talk about it enough in our conclusion here, is that we are curing about 10% of patients with myeloma. And I don't think we talk about that enough. And at Mount Sinai, my previous institution, we actually have a shared list and electronic medical record where my colleagues and I all pooled patients who'd been off therapy or had remissions lasting more than five years, which was something that we never talked about. And I think we need genomics and MRD technology to try to identify those patients who've been cured because how do you know if somebody's in persistent remission because of treatment or in spite of the treatment? And I think to answer that question, we need to start doing discontinuation studies, which is a really exciting question to be asking in what was previously a palliative disease. So right. um, it's a remarkable change in a very short time. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of community oncologists still tell patients, unfortunately, you'll need therapy kind of indefinitely. Some of those cures were done without a transplant or CAR-T therapy. Most of those are being done with transplant, but we actually have had a fair number of patients with monoclonal antibody-based treatments and relapse too. And of course, the CAR-Ts, Siltacel in particular, is the single best therapy we've had. The response rate was 98%. Progression for survival is over two years. And I have many patients out over three years off all therapy. So we need to see if we may be finally hitting that magical plateau again that we've been envious of lymphoma docs for. But I think myeloma will get there in increasing numbers very, very soon. 
Yeah, I mean, that's very exciting. 10%. It's, you know, CLL all of a sudden became something that didn't require indefinite therapy. And now uh, hopefully myeloma follows suit shortly. Well, Dr. Chari, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us. And thank you for everyone listening to this episode of Genomics Essentials and Hematologic Malignancies, a discussion about myeloma therapeutic testing that we hope that you found useful. Please tune into our other podcast episodes for insightful discussions about ALL, AML, MDS, slash CHIP, CLL, and lymphoma. You can find the full list of podcast episodes at hematology.org and lls.org.